Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. We are in Matthew chapter 22. We've been making our way through the book of Matthew. And what we've seen the last two and a half chapters or so is a series of confrontations that Jesus is having with the religious leaders. We're in the last week of Jesus' earthly life. We, we call it nowadays the Passover week or the Passion week. And during this week of Jesus' life, there's been one confrontation after the other with these leaders. So the first one began on Palm Sunday when Jesus is coming into the city. His uh, disciples are welcoming him in the form of a parade, if you will, and they're saying of him, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us, save us, which were references to uh, the Messiah. And the religious leaders hear this and they rebuke Jesus and they say, no, 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 you got to tell them to stop. They can't be saying these sorts of things about you. You need to make them stop. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to let them stop. That led to the next day, Jesus goes to the temple and there's the money changers doing what they're doing and the corruption and the religious system and all that. And Jesus starts throwing tables over and knocking down the money changers, buckets and all that kind of stuff. And that is the confrontation going on there. Then over the next two or three days, Jesus is teaching and he has a series of either direct teachings or parables in which he's calling out the religious leaders of the Jewish people and even saying of those Jewish people that the Lord is going to take that which was entrusted to them, to the Jewish people, but particularly the Jewish leaders, he's going to take that from them and give it to another people. And as you can imagine, there's quite a, a confrontation that forms as a result of that. And so today we continue along this line. Jesus is going to give the third in a series of parables against the Jewish people as a whole and the Jewish leaders in particular. So let me read uh, starting in chapter 22, verse 1. It says, Now again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And they went off, one to his farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now the king was angry, and he sent troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads, and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. And we'll pick up, we'll talk more about the rest of the passage in a moment. So there's actually two sections to this parable. I read the first section, which is verses 1 through 8. And first, verses 1 through 8 or 9 uh, apply to Jesus addressing the religious leaders. Verses 11 to 14, it applies to the religious leaders, but he's really addressing the rest of humanity. And so we're going to look at the first portion of that first where Jesus is addressing the religious leaders. Again, notice in verse 1, it says that he speaks to them in parables. He speaks to them into the, in the form of a story designed with an obvious conclusion that everybody could get. And there he says this, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a wedding feast. And so he begins by making reference to the kingdom of heaven. Now, oftentimes when we think of the kingdom of heaven, we think of heaven. 
the place up in the sky, wherever it may be, where God dwells in the angels, and so on. And oftentimes in our mind, that's what we think of when we hear the word kingdom of heaven. Also, the Bible uses the word kingdom of God, talking about the same thing. The reality is, though, we're not just talking about a place up in the sky, but when the Bible talks about this idea of the kingdom of heaven, there's so much more to it than just the place that is in the sky. So the idea of the kingdom of heaven in the scripture, it speaks of the spiritual rule of God over the hearts and lives of those who submit themselves to God. Now, those who defy God's authority and those who refuse to submit to the Lord, they're not a part of God's kingdom. And those that do submit to his authority and do submit to his reign in their lives, they are a part of the kingdom. Now, the Bible makes it clear that there will come a day when literally the kingdom of heaven will come and set up shop here on the earth. And we look forward to that. The Bible talks about the millennium uh, and things of that nature, where the kingdom of Christ is going to reign. But until that day happens, the kingdom of God reigning reigns in our hearts, and it reigns in our lives as we submit ourselves to that reign. And the Bible says that begins in a person's life when they repent of their sins, acknowledge the work of Christ, and as it says in the book of John, when they are born again, born from above, born anew. So entrance into the kingdom of heaven begins with submitting ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Very excited about this. Now, Jesus compares it, and our parable here, he compares his reign of Christ to one that is a partaker of a great wedding feast. And so, as it says there in verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a, a wedding feast that a king gave for his son. Now, the king and the son, I think, are pretty easy to decipher in our story, in our parable. The king, who also is the father of this son, he would represent the father, capital F, God, uh, the father in heaven. The son in whom the feast, for whom the feast is thrown represents the son, capital S, Jesus the Christ, and then there's some other people that are involved in this particular feast. Let's take a moment and consider them. Now, there are other places in the scripture which calls the church the bride of Christ. And so, since we are looking at a wedding feast here, we might draw the conclusion, okay, there's the king, that's the Father God, and there is the son, that's Jesus Christ, so therefore, the son must be getting married to the church, and all of these people are coming to attend. I wonder who all the people are. Well, because in other places the church is seen as the bride of Christ, we might draw the conclusion that here the church is the bride of Christ. But actually in this parable, there is no mention of the bride. We assume there's going to be a bride. That's why they're having a feast. And so the church isn't represented by the bride in this particular passage. In this particular parable, the church are the guest. The believers, if you will, are the guests, those that come to celebrate this particular feast. And so don't get kind of mixed up there, but it's the guests that are attending that are attending the ceremony, those are the ones that are in right relationship with heaven, with God, and those are the ones that are submitting themselves to the lordship of Christ in every area of their lives. Now notice this about the wedding feast. As the wedding feast approaches, it says that the father sends out a series of invites. He actually sends out two invitations to the community. The first one we see in verse 3, it says the father sends out, notice it says, his servants, and that they go to a specific group of people. They go to a group of people that are on the guest list, and they say, hey, look, make ready. They invite those who were invited, specific group of people. 
Now, in their day, weddings were a little different than in our day for a variety of reasons. I'm not going to get into all of them necessarily. But there wasn't a fixed time for a wedding. You knew that it was coming. And so that what is going on here in this first invite, this is really like a pre-invite invite. So today we, you know, little magnets get mailed to your house a year before. Save the date. It's going to be awesome. We want you there. You know, that sort of thing here. That's kind of what's going on here. It's a pre-invite invite. Hey, you know what? In a week, two weeks or so, the wedding's going to happen. Now's a good time. Get your suit down to the cleaners. Get it cleaned up because it's going to be great, and we want you there. It's a pre-invite invite. The second invite is when the food is on the table, and the animals have been slaughtered, and the drink is ready, and the band is setting up, and it's going to be a great time, and they'll send everyone out. I said, look, we, call, we called you last week. Well, it's today. Get your suit on, get down to the firehouse, because it's going to be awesome. We're having a wedding feast today, and we're looking forward to it. That's what happens in verse 4. That's that second invite. Now, last week, we looked at the parable of the tenants. And in the parable of the tenants, you have a group of servants who would go out, and remember, they were trying to collect the rent from those that uh, were in control of that land, the tenants that were in control of the land there. And we saw that the servants were representative of the Lord's prophets. Well, in this parable, this week's parable, the servants are representative also of the Lord's prophets. So there is a car- prophets. So there's a carry over there. The servants are those that are sent by the Father to call people to submit themselves to the reign of God, and specifically to prepare the people for the coming of His Son. That's what the servant's job is. That's the job of the prophets, if you will. The people that the servants initially went to are indicative of, representative of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel, for their history, they were the people that were set apart by God as a chosen people, chosen as his own people, the people of God, the people of Israel. And in the parable here, these are the guys, they represent the guys that were invited to partake of the wedding feast of the son. But notice what it says in, at the end of verse 3, they would not come. So despite the fact that God called the Jewish people to be his people when they were not his people, despite the fact that he again and again miraculously preserves the Jewish people, and remember you got this little nation there in the area of the Middle East with all the nations around it, both then and now, that hated them, even when this new nation was birthed, uh, which I believe is a fulfillment of prophecy in the 1940s, when the new nation was birthed, there were the nations pledged they were going to drive it into the sea. They, they were hated just as much then as they are today. And despite all of that, despite the fact that they were outnumbered and outgunned by the surrounding nations, God continually preserved, miraculously, the Jewish people. And despite their repeated sin and alienating themselves, rejecting, rebelling against a holy God, he continued to reach out to his people. He was faithful. And he was faithful because he had made a covenant with the Jewish people. When God called Abram to himself, a man we now know as Abraham, when he called Abraham to himself, he said this, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, specifically, we know what that means, that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Specifically, what that means is through you, through you, Abraham, and your offspring after you, the Messiah will come. And the Messiah is the one and the only one that can save people of their sins. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And despite all of these attempts of the Lord to keep coming back in his faithfulness, they reject it. And so in response to that rejection, this king, this father in the parable, sends other servants. 
He tries again and he tries again and he tries again, both in the parable and in the history of the Jewish people. He says to them, look, the feast is prepared. I sent you the pre-invite invite, but now it's time. The food is on the table. Let's go. You got to be here. As John the Baptist would say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message of John the Baptist, the contemporary of Christ, and yet the Jewish leaders, they declined, just as they do here in the parable. I want you to take notice of the reason for their decline. We read in verse 5, but they paid no attention, and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and he killed them. They paid no attention simply because they got busy with other things. Here the passage says, some went to their farm. If you ever worked on a farm, you know there's always something work-wise you can do on a farm. So some of these guys went to their farm, presumably to do some work. Others, it says, they got involved with their place of business and the work that they had to do at their place of business. The same parable in the book of Luke, Luke gives us a little more specifics of the examples Jesus gave. And Luke tells us that Jesus said that one of their excuses was one guy went and bought a field and he wanted to go look at the field. It's a nice field, you know. And he was excited about the field that he just bought. It says that another guy bought five yoke of oxen, oxen, I should say, and he had to go and inspect the oxen. Another guy, it says that he just got married and he was unable to attend. And anyone who got married, you know you can't go anywhere anymore once you get married or whatever, you know, unless your wife gives you permission or whatever. And so he can't come, obviously. So you got a guy working on his farm. you got a guy going to work in his place of business. And you know the guy that just got married and wants to stay home with his wife or whatever. Not horrible things, are they? They're not wicked, sinful, terrible things that these guys are doing. They're just going about kind of the norms of life. And sadly, it was these things, this stuff, that took their attention away from the things of God. Not necessarily wicked things, but things that took their attention away from the things of God. It's been said that the greatest danger in the Christian life is not always the dark and the demonic. That it can just as easily be the good things in life. A job, a relationship, a home that you got to care for and things like that. It can just as easily be the good things in life that worm their way in between you and your relationship with Christ. The reality is this. If the tempting things always looked bad, we would seldom give in to them because we could see it for what it is right there in front of us. And so it's not uncommon that the tempting things are going to be attractive things, appropriate things that seems that look great and good, but they're not the best that God would have for us. And that's what's going on with this first group. That's what trips them up. They get involved with other things. They get too busy. Now, the second group in verse 6 They reject with outright hostility. And Jesus in the parable says that they seize the father's servants, treat them shamefully, and ultimately kill them. And so just as we saw in the parable last week about the parable of the tenants, the people respond to these representatives not just by rejecting them, but by actually killing them and casting them off. All because they weren't interested in submitting themselves to God and the reign of God in their lives. And so they will kill the representatives as a result. Now back to the parable, look at the king. In verse 7 it says that his response is that he's angry. It says, now the king was angry, he sent his troops, and he destroyed those murderers, and he burned their city. He's so angry that he takes action 
And he sends not more servants to invite them, but troops. He sends troops to deal with, for all practical purposes, what is an insurrection that is going on. And so he sends the troops in, knowing, knowing that the king represents God. When I read here that he sends troops and he kills those people, that's kind of troubling for me. I don't know if it's troubling for any of you, but I read that and I'm like, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Why would God kill the people? Just because they don't want to come to the wedding feast? God's going to start killing people? Oh boy, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Well, remember this. This is a story. It's a story that's designed to teach a lesson. And even with saying that, that it's a story and not a real life event, but even in saying that it is a story, remember, these are not people that just politely declined an invitation. These are the people that killed those that were bringing the invitation. And so I think we might forget that a little bit if we think that God is being too harsh. I think a lot of times we want to think of God as like our loving grandpop in the sky. And, you know, grandpops are awesome. They can do whatever they want. Their son or daughter can't tell them, you can't do that. You can't give the kid candy all the time because I'm grandpop. Grandpop can do whatever he wants to do kind of thing. And so we have a grandpop uh, picture we think that God is like our grandpop in the sky, who's just always nice, always kind, always does good things for us, loves us, and so on and so forth. And he never gets angry with us. And if he does get a little angry, he just says, go see your father and deal with him. And he can go and do whatever he wanted to do. But the reality is this. God is not a grandpop in the Bible. That's not the picture that we have of God in the Bible. The God of the Bible is a holy God who invites us to conform to his standards, not he to our standards. And the God of the Bible essentially says this, take it or leave it, because I'm not changing. Right? I'm the God of the Bible, and you're going to change to my standards. I'm not going to change to yours. Sometimes I think we think, or people think maybe, that God is sort of a desperate salesman. i got to make this sale by the end of the month, and I'll throw whatever you want in just for you to say yes. And again, that's not the picture that the Bible paints of God. God is righteous, and, is, and he is holy, and the way of God goes, not the way of man. And so in our picture, we have these repeated attempts to reach the Jewish people, followed by repeated rejections on the part of the Jewish people, particularly the Jewish leaders. And so God then moves on to a people that are willing to respond. And we pick up in verse 8. It says, Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both the bad and the good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now throughout the Old Testament, we see that God had a unique relationship with the Jewish people, with the Jewish people. If you were a Gentile in the Old Testament era, you could still have a relationship with God, walk with God, but you did so in such a way that you had to convert to the Jewish faith. You had to become a proselyte. And so we see examples of that. Rahab was a Gentile. Ruth was a Gentile. Technically, even Abraham himself was a Gentile, though he's sort of the father of the Jewish people, but he wasn't always. Scripture says he was a polytheist, went after all sorts of other gods. And God got a hold of him and brought him in. But if you were, gonna, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to have a relationship with the God of Israel, you had to convert to the faith. That was the Old Testament. In the New Testament, if you're a Jew, you have to convert to the, the Christian faith. It's like completely turned over. Now, let me explain what I mean by that and what I'm saying uh, by that is. I'm not saying that a Jew has to abandon 
their Jewishness. I'm not saying if they abandoned their nation or something like that, if they're from the nation of Israel. But what I'm simply saying is there's a difference between spiritual and cultural. There's a difference between spiritual and national. And being a Jew is cultural. Being a Jew is national. And so if a person wants to come into the Christian faith, they need to convert to the Christian faith, the complete opposite of the way that it was in the Old Testament. When Israel rejected God's anointed Messiah, as Jesus predicted they would, the kingdom was taken from them and given to another people. God's working with man changed in that instance. And so as I said previously, previously, if you were a Gentile, you had to convert to the faith. Now it is just the opposite. The Jew has to convert to the Christian faith. When God took that kingdom from the nation of Israel, when he gave it to another people, we entered into a brand new era of God's working with man. And we transitioned from the Old Testament covenant of the law into the New Testament covenant of God's grace. And Jesus here in this parable is depicting that transition. Now, last week I told you what the other people, who the other people were, that's the church. And it's the church, capital C, it's the church that is now entrusted with the words of eternal life. It's the church that is called to make known the message of God, to go into all of the world and proclaim that there's forgiveness of sin through a man that died on a cross 2,000 years ago. The nation of Israel, after repeated rejections, if you will, they were deemed unworthy to be entrusted with that message. And so the trust was taken to them and given to another, and that is the church. No wonder there's conflict going on between Jesus and the religious leaders. Now, as we see in the passage here, what was once an exclusive invitation, the servants went specifically to people and invited them to come, became an open invitation. Just go out in the streets, whoever you find, ask them if they want to come to this particular fe- uh, feast. If you will, it now went to whosoever will. And I love the way basically the Bible concludes. In Revelation chapter 22, it says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Notice, whoever, whosoever will, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Isn't that good news? In the picture of the parable, the king says, go therefore to the main roads, invite the wedding, to the wedding feast as many as you find. Whoever you will, whosoever will that wants to come is welcome to come. Now what's so interesting about this scenario, this story, is a wedding feast would have been the highlight of your year probably. You know, you would have looked in the beginning of the year, you're watching the kids starting to get a little older, and maybe Sally, maybe Billy, or whomever is going to get married, it's going to be great, we're going to have this big feast and good food and dancing and the DJs and the Macarena and all this kind of stuff, and I just can't wait, it's going to be so fun, or whatever. And then when it finally, you know, it came to that point and the invite came out, that would have been the highlight of your year probably. Now, if you were invited to the wedding feast of the king's son, That would be like the highlight of your life. The time you got to go to the prince's wedding or the princess's wedding would have been a delight for you. And yet, there's people rejecting. And you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the gospel going forth. And so we go, we share with individuals, we talk to them, we say, you know, you're a sinner, right? Yes, I know I'm a sinner, I'm a louse. You you can be clean. You can be washed of that. All of your sin that separates you from a holy God can be taken away. And it starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ on the cross and submitting yourself to his lordship. 
and then you'll be right with God, eternity, and you know, we go through all of the benefits, if you will, and the response of some is, eh, eh, nah, it's not for me. Not for you? What are you? Not for you? <laughs> what are you talking about? Come on, it's the best news ever. Why would anybody want to not, not want to go to this wedding feast? And yet we see and experience the same things in our day as it pertains to the gospel of Christ. But the king was determined everybody, every seat in that place was going to be filled. And so the servants go out and they invite as many as they can possibly find. I'd encourage you, you are those servants. We are told to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Are you telling people about Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sin? Because there's a lot of empty seats and there's a lot of people that need to be told of the glory of the gospel so that they can come and attend that feast. And so that's what the servants do. Look at verse 10. The servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both the bad and the good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, these folks that have filled this place, these are totally undeserving people. So these are not old family friends. I'm, when I got married, we, you know, we're looking at the list. My in-laws, they gave us sort of a budget. You know, you have this much money for your wedding and all that kind of stuff. And so we're looking at the list, and my wife and I, we made a list, and my wife's parents made a list, and my parents made a list. And, and we're looking, and, and each couple that's attending in our heads, we're like, that's a hundred bucks for them, you know. I don't really like them that much, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Cross it off. And we're kind of doing that in our head with the budget that we were given for this particular wedding. And we're crossing off names of people I don't even know. Who's that? Well, that's the lady you call Aunt Sally. Oh, who's she? You know, and she's our friend for 50 years. You got to bring her or whatever. Okay, you know, let her come. And you feel like there's people that are obligated that you have to let those people there. I'm starting to get older. My kids are getting close to marriage. Pretty soon I'm going to be the person they're obligated to bring to a wedding, you know, because I grew up with the little kid grew up around me or whatever. So I'm getting old. That's okay. All right. No amens. All right, but anyway, these invitees, totally undeserving, not old family friends, not acquaintances, not business partners, or whatever, total strangers to whom the invitation is given for no other reason but the kindness of the Father and his desire to bless his Son. And the invite is nothing more than an invite of grace. And that's the gospel message, that though, as it says in Romans 5, we are undeserving sinners, Christ died for us. And that through his death and resurrection, we that were once far off have been brought near into relationship, even with the king himself. I love what Paul has written. I'm a fan of Paul. I hope you are as well. And I love what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 because I think it speaks to this. As a matter of fact, I think even as you read it, there's sort of this picture of a wedding banquet feast going on. So let me read the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 2. It says, But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. And then Paul adds, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us that are in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel message. And so you may not have grown up around God or the things of God. I think what this parable points to is he came to find you. You were out in the byways, so to speak. You were out in the streets. But he came to you. He sought you out. He caused you to end up in this 
terribly 70s decorated room, all right? But he caused you to end up here so that you might hear the words of eternal life, that God so loved you that he gave his only son to die for you, that you might believe in his son and be saved. He invites us to the wedding feast of his son so that the kingdom of God might reign in each one of our lives. And that's really, really good news. Now, the parable's not finished. And it kind of takes a surprising turn in verse 11. You'd almost expect verse 11 to say something like, and they all lived happily ever after. You'd, you'd almost expect that, but it doesn't say that. Instead, what we read is, when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to the man, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind this man, hand and foot, cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. You see what I'm saying? How it seems unexpected, it doesn't seem to fit with what was going on in the, the opening verses. So obviously we want to consider what's going on here. And who is this guy that is improperly clothed in the service, but kicked out of the wedding feast there? Who's he supposed to represent? Well, if we go back and take a look at this parable, and we begin now in verse 11, you've got this feast that is packed. People are everywhere, they're celebrating, they're eating good food, they probably, you know, you, you think of them almost as like a homeless people or something like that in the byways or just sort of running in and out, working people, and now they're at this fancy meal that they never get, and they're delighting in the food and the drink and the DJ's playing the Macarena, and it is just going to be awesome, and the king comes in there and his eye catches one guy who's kind of off on the side eating all the hors d'oeuvres or whatever, and he's dressed like a slob. And he sees this fellow, and it draw, his attention is drawn to him, as it says in verse 11, that he was a man who had no wedding garment. Now, Charles Ryrie, Charles Ryrie was a Bible teacher. He did some teaching down here in Philly for a while. He was from Texas, Dallas, Texas. And my very first study Bible that my 17 or 18-year-old girlfriend bought for me uh, when I came to know the Lord. She got my name put on the bottom of it, Robin Downs, right out there. She bought me a study Bible when I was about 17, uh, and it was the Ryrie Study Bible. So I love this guy. And so Charles Ryrie, he commented, it's a fun name to say, Ryrie, or whatever, but Charles Ryrie commented on this, that it was customary in those days for the host of a wedding feast, if need be, to provide a garment, all of his guests with a wedding garment, if they didn't have one. So if you had a wedding garment, you had a suit, whatever it may be, back home, a nice dress or whatever, then wear your own. But if you don't have one, I don't want you, that to keep you from coming. I want everyone to come. So if you don't have one, you just let me know, and I'll give you one so that you can attend. So here's this guy that is in this particular wedding feast without a wedding garment for no other reason, not because he was poor or anything like that, because it didn't matter if you were poor. He doesn't have a wedding garment because he didn't want to have a wedding garment. One was available for him if he wanted so. Notice what it says in verse 12. He's asked about it, and it says the man is speechless. He's speechless because what is he going to say? He can't say, well, I didn't have one, but I really wanted to come anyway, and I'm sorry. Because if he says that, the guy said, I would have given you one. Everyone knows that. So he can't make that excuse. He can't say, well, I just didn't feel like coming to you. He can't say, I was embarrassed, or whatever it may be. He can't say, well, no one's going to tell me what I have to wear. I'll go wherever I want to go. And if you want me in your feast, you'll be happy to have me in your feast. He can't say that because he's talking to the king. And you don't give those kinds of excuses to the king. And so wisely, the man says nothing. 
And this reminds me, there's a lot of people that kind of have an attitude with God. And maybe, I hope you're not one of them, but a lot of people will say, you know what, when I get to heaven, I'm getting all like Aretha Franklin, when I get to heaven, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to tell him these things about him and so on and so forth. And I think, you know, you want to be polite with people like that or whatever, but I, I think the response is really, is it really what you think you're going to do? Because that's not the picture that the Bible paints. The Bible paints a picture more like you falling down on your face in front of him, not you going in there and telling him what he needs to know or something like that. And so you have this guy, he stands there speechless in the presence of the guy. And again, who is this guy with a wedding garment, or without a wedding garment, that is cast out into outer darkness? Well, we know again that the wedding feast speaks of the kingdom of heaven. And again, the kingdom of heaven is the rule of God in the lives of of those that have submitted themselves to that rule. The garment that these guests are wearing, and in this case this fellow is not wearing, it speaks of the righteousness of Christ. So the garment speaks of the righteousness of Christ, if you will, that clothes those that are in Christ, those that are believers. So when a person becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, when the kingdom of heaven begins to reign in their lives, when they get that invite and they accept and they go to that wedding feast there, the scripture says that the righteousness of Christ actually becomes their own righteousness. And so this is why, though everyone, I think every one of us in here would admit, I know many of us because I know many of you personally, would admit, I'm a sinner and there is a holy God in heaven and I am not in his league. I'm a stained sinner, and i got a long list of them too here, and yet God has been good to me. This is the reason why, what I was describing earlier, is the reason why though we are stained and unholy sinners, we can come into the presence of a pure and holy God. Because we're not clothed in our own righteousness, we're clothed in his righteousness. Paul would say this, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that's a little bit of a tongue twister. But what Paul is saying is that God took our unrighteousness and our sin and took it and put it on Jesus and then judged Jesus for our unrighteousness and sin. And at the same time that he is doing that, simultaneously, God took, uh, when he took my sin and put it on him, God took Jesus' righteousness and sinlessness and put it on me and clothed me with his righteousness. He's clothed with my unrighteousness. I'm clothed with his righteousness. Charles Spurgeon called that the great exchange. John Corson, a little more contemporary, he called it the great switcheroo. Theologians call it penal substitutionary atonement. And what it is is this. It's justification by faith and the imputation of righteousness. And the only reason why it happens in anybody's life is because of God's grace and God's mercy and God's love. And so to help us understand, how does that happen? How could the sinless one become sin and the sinful one be seen as if he has no sin? How does that happen? Well, to help us ex to understand that, the writers of Scripture have used, and a lot of different writers have used it, a picture to describe what is going on there. And the picture that they use is that of garments, a garment being taken off and a new garment being put on. Isaiah describes a person in the state of sin this way. Isaiah 64, he says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, 
and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Our iniquities are like a filthy garment. But notice what Isaiah also says as he describes that great exchange. He says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. See the exchange? Uh, The prophet Zechariah said, Uh, This he spoke, he said thus to those standing, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with festal robes. The righteousness of Christ. So here you have a man trying to get into this wedding clothed in the, so to speak, the unrighteous garments. He's delighted to have the food and the drink and the dance music and all of the revelry or whatever. But don't bother him with discarding his own filthy garments and exchanging them for new wedding garments. That doesn't interest him. So notice what the king responds in verse 13. The king says, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into outer darkness where there is weeping or gnashing of teeth. He tosses him out of the party. He casts him bound hand and foot into outer darkness, the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, does this mean that this fellow lost his salvation, that he was cast out of the kingdom because he was in sin? Well, the parable could give that impression. You have a guy in the wedding feast one minute, out of the wedding feast the next minute, and if the wedding feast represents the kingdom of heaven, then he was in the kingdom of heaven one minute, he was out of the kingdom of heaven the next minute. I guess you could see that there. In response to that, what I would say is this, is that this is a story. This is not an actual account of an event that occurred. It's a story. And in a parable, in a story, not every single part of the story is going to carry over exactly into sort of real-life circumstances. And so that's the first thing that I would say. The thing that we want to take away from this particular parable is the part about this guy not being permitted to be in the kingdom of heaven. So don't think of him as sitting there and spending the whole night and then being thrown out. Think of him as coming to the door trying to get in. And he's not permitted to stay in this feast because of the lack of wedding garments, which we saw is being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So I think a better understanding of what is going on here is we have a guy that appears to be a part of the kingdom of God who is not really a part of the kingdom of God. And the reason is, is because he is a man who is, number one, trusting in his own righteousness He's still clothed in his filthy garments. He hasn't put on the wedding garment. And he's trusting in his own righteousness to get into heaven. And secondly, he is a man that has refused to surrender himself to the life of Christ. He's refused. I know I'm supposed to put on a wedding garment. I know one's available for me, but I'm not interested in that. I'll get to heaven on my own, thank you. I'm a good person. Go find someone who really needs help, whatever it may be. And no one will ever enter the kingdom of heaven based on their own righteousness, and who has refused to humble themselves and bow their knee to Christ. Again, remember that verse from Isaiah earlier, which said, even our righteous deeds are like filthy garments in his presence. Even our very best attempts at righteousness fall woefully short of the standard that God requires. And so anyone that comes to the end of their days trusting in themselves and their meager attempts at righteousness are going to face the same fellow, uh, same fate as this fellow did. He or she will be put out of God's presence and cast into hell. And so these are serious words, needless to say. Now the second portion, this part we're looking at now, again, it seems like it's so out of place. 
I thought we were talking about Jesus taking the message of the kingdom from the Jewish leaders and giving it to Gentiles, essentially giving it to the church, you know, but where does this particular part fit in here? But what, where it fits in, I believe, is this. What Jesus has done is expanded the point that he made with the first group of people. And the first group of people, the Jewish leaders, essentially, the point that he made with them is, look, you must respond to the invitation. You must respond. I think the point that he's making here as well is with a different group of people, you too must respond. Everybody has to respond to the invitation that is extended to them, whether it be the earlier servants or the earlier uh, leaders or these new people that just kind of jump in right at the end. There is a response to the expectations that must come. The expectations are there and a person must respond. Again, God is not desperate and willing to settle for whatever he can get. If you want the kingdom of heaven, then you must submit yourself to the kingdom of heaven. A person must conform to the process that God has established for a person to receive the benefits that he has established. When I was in high school, there was a football coach in our school, and we could always hear him with the kids on the other field there, and he would always yell, this isn't Burger King, you can't have it your way. This is the 1980s. And this isn't Burger King, he would say. You can't have it your way. And it's, I hate to say it, it's the same in the kingdom of God. All of us must submit ourselves to God's way. Now, we know that the first group that rejected the invitation to wedding feast, they did so either through indifference or outright rejection. We know that they represented the Jewish people and the Jewish nation as a whole, the Jewish leaders and the Jewish nation as a whole. This particular person here with the unclean garments, I would suggest to you, he could represent a number of people, but I would suggest to you this represents the person that is very close to the church, but not themselves apart of the church. And by church, I'm not saying Calvary Chapel or the local church down the street. I'm talking about capital C, the church, the universal church of men, women, and young people that know, despite the fact that they are a stained individual, they have exchanged their garments, unrighteous, filthy garments, for the righteousness of Christ. That's the church. And I think this guy here represents a guy that's very close to that, a guy you might look at and you might say, that's, that's a good guy. What a good person, or whatever. They may not be a believer, but, you know, they're not kitten, killing kittens or something like that. They're a nice guy. They live their life. They have a funeral. A lot of people come and say, Jim was a good fella. He was a good guy. Or whatever. I think it's a guy like that. It, you can be close to the church, but not actually part of the church. And so I say to you, you may come here every Sunday, and maybe you grew up in this church. And we're getting more and more kids that have grown up in this church that were born the first year the church uh, was birthed and have grown up in this church. And I will say this to you guys as well. You may come here every Sunday. You may have grown up here in the church, but that doesn't save you. Just because you come into this church, put your name on the directory, whatever it may be, that doesn't save a person. Proximity to the things of God will never save a person. Your response to the person and work of Jesus Christ alone is what saves a person. Now, I want to take notice of this last couple stuff here. This is what we've observed so far. You have a father that is willing to go to great lengths to see to it that the wedding feast is filled, even extending it to whosoever will. What we see also is despite the incredible offer, incredibly generous offer to attend what should have been the experience of the lifetime, you have three different groups of people that reject that offer, just as there are millions of people that are rejecting the offer of salvation throughout the last couple thousand years. 
And the three different groups of people that we have in our passage, you have the indifferent, relatively speaking, not horrible people, just people that are too busy doing other things to have time for God. You have the antagonistic. These are those that are prepared to go to war with God or the people of God that are trying to proclaim the message of God. The antagonistic, a battle they're surely going to lose. And then the last group are those that remain unchanged. Yeah, sure, I'll come down to the wedding. Free food? Yeah, I'll be there, whatever. They might say, you know, yeah, God's cool. I like God. Sure, God's good. Just don't ask anything of me because I'm not interested in that. That's the last group of people. They are those that have remained unchanged. And as you hear about those three people, as you hear about the indifferent, as you hear about the antagonistic, as you hear about the unchanged, let me just ask you, does that describe you? Are you one of those three people? You come to church, you're around church, you've grown up in the church, you come with friends to the church, whatever it may be, but you look at your life and you're like, you know what, I'm one of those three people. I don't want God to make any demands on my life. I don't know who God is to say he can make any demands on my life. I don't really have time to think about God and his demands on my life. If they describe any of you, may I say to you, you're not saved and you need to get saved. Submit yourself to the reign of God in your life, in every area of your life. Acknowledge that there's only one way that a man can be saved. And Jesus Christ himself described himself as that one way and get saved this morning. Now there's one final verse, it's verse 14. Notice it says, for many are called, but few are chosen. As we said, the king went to great lengths to fill up this wedding feast. Many indeed were called. And sadly, as we read, many rejected. Now why did they reject Well, he tells us there in verse 14, because they were not chosen. Why did they reject? Because they were not chosen. And that's why they were rejected. Now you hear that and you say, well, wait a minute. That's contradictory. People are called. They can respond if they want to, but only, and everybody was called, and yet only the chosen were the ones that responded. That's contradictory. In some senses, I guess it is, but I also know that it's not contradictory because the Bible teaches both of those things. The Bible teaches both the free will of man to respond and believe or to reject and deny. And at the same time, it teaches about the election of God and, the sovereign, and his sovereign choosing in our lives. So why did the people not come to the wedding feast? Because they refused the invitation. Why did they refuse the invitation? Because they were not chosen. And somehow, in God's wisdom, ask Mark, he'll explain it to you. Already, he, he taught this little Oxano class on it, and I got it when I sat there. But somehow in God's wisdom, all of that intertwines and it makes perfect sense. And so this morning, simply, we just ask you, where are you in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Does he rule and reign in your life? Because if he doesn't now, he won't then. And as we saw this morning, there are consequences to continually rejecting his invitation. Make sure you are right with the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there's really nothing on our part to do except to accept the gift of salvation. Lord, to say, to acknowledge that I am indeed a sinner and my sin separates me from a holy God, but yet there was a way and that your Son has provided a way and he invites whosoever will to come and to take of that free eternal life without price. And so, Father, we pray for those of us that may be here today that have yet to begin a relationship with you that still have their sin and they're trying to do things to dust off and clean up their stained garments. But no, whatever they do, it just spreads the stain even more. Lord, I pray today that you would be so kind 
as to speak to their hearts and say, look, it's hopeless. There's nothing you can do to clean up the mess of your life and the stains that are on your garment. You need a new garment. And Lord, that even this morning, even this afternoon, as they go from here and they consider these things, I pray you would take this picture of the old garment being taken off and the new garment being, being put on and you would cause it all to resonate in their heart in such a way that it makes absolute perfect sense and they can't believe they've never seen it before. And Lord, that you would enter into their lives and you would awaken them, you'd cause them to be born anew. Lord, we ask that you would do that, not just for folks in this room, but we have friends that we love and we care for. Lord, pour out your spirit that many might come to know you. And Father, for those of us in this room, we want you, Lord, to analyze, put your, your spotlight on every area of our lives. Are there ways where we've said, you know what, I'm going to do it my own way and nobody can tell me differently. Lord, we want to submit that to you as well. We recognize that you are in a process of changing us into the image of your son and that our old man has to go and the new man has to come and reign in every area of our lives. And so, Lord, we're asking in your kindness that you would reveal what those areas are that we need to submit to your lordship and then give us the courage to submit them to you. And so, Father, we, we humbly lift ourselves before you. Do a heavenly work in each one of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.